All right, well, if you have your Bible, you can turn with me to Luke 13, Luke 13. Um, so while you're turning there, uh, when I have preached in here in the past, I've told you about a hero of mine named Charles Spurgeon, a pretty famous preacher, lived back in the 1800s. Uh, and even though he lived so long ago, God has used Spurgeon's ministry in my life in really great ways. In my opinion, he is the goat of preaching. And for those of you who don't know what that means, that's a good thing. It means he's the greatest of all time. He's the Tom Brady of preaching. That's who Charles Spurgeon is. And there's one specific story about Spurgeon that I've always found fascinating. It's the story of how God saved him as a teenager. And so he actually writes about this story in his own autobiography. So I'm just going to read his words. This would be what he would say if he was doing what Caleb just did, about to get baptized and was telling his story of how God saved him. This is how he would, would describe it. So here's, here's Spurgeon's words. And remember, he's British. He's writing in the, uh, in the 1800s. So there's some language in here that's hard to follow. But just, just listen to this. It's really awesome. So here's him describing his salvation story. He says this. He says, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. I had heard of the primitive Methodists, how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache. But that did not matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved. And if they could tell me that, I did not care how much they made my headache. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed in, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now, this man was really stupid. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look, look to Christ. Christ says, look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. O poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. When he had gone about that length and managed to spend out ten minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery. And I dare say, with so few present, he must have known I was a stranger. And fixing his eyes on me as if he knew my heart, he said, Young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance. (laughs) However, it was a good blow. It struck right home. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. 
And I saw it once the way of salvation. (laughs) I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought, look. And now I can say, ever since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. That's a cool story, right? Isn't that awesome? That's a cool story. Here's, Here's my question, though. Let's say that we could get in a time machine, get in our DeLorean, go back to this worship gathering and sit there and listen to this. Sit there and look around. What would we think? We probably wouldn't think much of it, right? We're sitting in a little Methodist chapel in the middle of a snowstorm with 15 people and a preacher who isn't very good. We would probably even leave and say, that was kind of awkward when that guy was berating that teenager in the back, right? Like, this would not be a memorable worship gathering for us. But here's the point. Here's the point I want you to see. If we had eyes to see, we would see that God was doing something, right? God was doing something. We wouldn't have been able to see it, probably. But if we had eyes to see, we would see that God was doing something in that small, seemingly insignificant worship gathering. Because he used that gathering to save that teenager. And that teenager went on to have a ministry where thousands of others were saved. And now here we are, and a 28-year-old preacher quotes this preacher every chance he gets. Even though he died 100 years before I was born. You see what I'm saying? If we were in this gathering, we wouldn't have thought anything special was going on. But if we had eyes to see, we would know that God was doing something really powerful. And that's the point of the passage this morning. He was doing something powerful, but it wasn't obvious. And Jesus tells us that's how God's kingdom works. So here in a second, we're going to get to Luke 13, 18 through 21. We already heard it read by Kenny, but I want you to just get the context really quick. Before I go there, I need need you to bear with me. Because this passage, you already heard it, it's powerful. But I think it's even more powerful when you understand the context. I I need you to use your imagination. Okay, adults, as adults, we get really bad at using our imagination, right? My son's great at using his imagination. We get bad at it. I want you to use your imagination, okay? And I want you to picture that you are a Jew in the first century in Galilee. You with me? Okay, a Jew in the first century in Galilee. So think about this. You don't have a New Testament, okay? You don't have a New Testament. It hasn't been written yet. All you have is the, what we call the Old Testament, And you've grown up on these. You've grown up on these stories. You've grown up hearing the stories, first of all, of your God, the one true God, Yahweh. But you've also grown up hearing the stories of Abraham and Moses and David and Ruth. You've grown up on these stories. That's not the only thing. You've grown up on these stories and you feel an extra connection to them because you actually live on the land where they happened. Right? This is your land. This is your people's land. And so you are proud to be a Jew. You're proud of your God. You're proud of your people. You're proud of your people's history, of their stories. You're proud. But there's a problem. You are living under Roman occupation. And you have your entire life. And there isn't a day that goes by that you don't feel the weight of their oppression whether it's the governor, Pilate, unjustly killing your people during a protest, not even batting an eye. 
or the unfair taxes that just keep going higher and higher and higher. Your people are oppressed. You are oppressed and you feel it every single day. You feel it when you walk through the market and their guards are staring you down. You feel it. And here's how bad things have gotten. Okay, you actually have an uncle who's a farmer. And he farms the land that's been in your family for generations. You used to play on this land as a kid. This is where the family gatherings happened. You love this land. He's a farmer on that land, but actually taxes have gotten so high that he couldn't pay them. And so the Romans just came in and took it. Your family's land took it. Didn't even bat an eye. Took it. Done. Right? They don't even care. They don't care about you. They don't care about your people. They don't care about your God. They don't care about your history. They don't care about anything. And now your un- uncle is homeless. He can't find work. Things are not going well. They're not going well for you or anyone that you know and love. But you do have hope. Okay? You do have hope. You've heard, when you've heard these stories growing up, you've also heard about the Messiah who's coming. But here's what you've been taught, okay? Here's what you've been taught, and here's what everyone around you has been taught. This Messiah is going to come, but he's going to come like the great heroes of your past. He's going to come like Moses, who freed his people from the oppression of the Egyptians. He's going to come do that. He's going to come like David, a great warrior king who slays giants and defeats his enemies. That's what the Messiah is coming like. And so you're waiting for a strong man to come and put an end to your Roman problem. You feel that? That's what you're waiting for. The Messiah to come to take care of Caesar. And it's in this political climate that a man shows up traveling from town to town with a message. And the word gets out to you about this man. His name is Yeshua. We know him as Jesus, right? You hear of Yeshua, and he has this message, and his message is simple. Here's the message he's teaching. The kingdom of God is here. The true king is here. And you're skeptical. People have claimed this before, so you're skeptical. But this feels different. So you're hopeful. And you hear that this man is actually going to be teaching in your synagogue that Sabbath. And so you go, you get a seat in that synagogue, and you listen to this man. And he shows up, and you're expecting a message, but you get more than you could ever have hoped for. Here's what happens. This is from our passage we studied last week, Luke 13, 10 through 13. It says, Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. Can you picture that? You're waiting for the Messiah, and you get a front row seat to that. (laughs) That's pretty cool, right? And so what do you do? You rejoice. This Messiah is legit, right? Like, this is, it's going to happen. Like, this is the Messiah that we have been waiting for. There is excitement in the air. The king is here. A military coup is coming. You are ready. Caesar's days are numbered. And then the group gathers around Jesus. And he speaks. And what are you waiting for? A 
a pregame talk, right? Like, let's go. Tell us our battle plans. Let's do it. What do you got for us, Jesus? And here's what he says. Here's our passage. Luke 13, 18 through 21. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nest in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Can you see what Jesus just did here? Everyone's excited. Everyone's looking for the pregame talk. Everyone's looking for the battle plans. They say, okay, king, we're following you. What's your kingdom like? And what does Jesus do? Okay. So picture a lady making bread. Okay? That's my kingdom. You know a mustard seed? That smallest seed, right? That's my kingdom. You see what he's doing, right? Everyone's expectations totally blown up here. Totally blown up. They're expecting one thing. They're expecting a strong man. They're expecting a man to come in like lightning and just end their problems. And he said, no. Small, insignificant, slow, powerful. That's my kingdom. That's my kingdom. He blows up their expectations. And so I want to study this. I want to look at three things here of what we learn about the kingdom. Because here's the thing. We're sitting 2,000 years later looking back on it, and even we can get confused what God's kingdom's like. Okay? So let's see here. Three things about the kingdom. Three things that we learn about the kingdom from Jesus' parables here. Here's number one. God's kingdom comes in ways that we don't expect. God's kingdom comes in ways that we don't expect. The first of the two parables is the parable of the mustard seed. It's a simple story, right? It's a little seed, one of the smallest seeds they would have had. But if you plant it, it becomes a big tree, kind of like a big bush. And it's so big that birds can actually nest in it. And so Jesus says this is actually what the kingdom is like. A mustard seed works in ways you wouldn't expect. And Jesus says God, too, works in ways that we wouldn't expect. And we see this clearly. If you just look through the Bible, we see God working in ways that we wouldn't expect. But maybe the, the easiest way to look at this is just look at Jesus' life. Just look at Jesus' biography. Here's the thing. Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Okay, Nazareth. Nazareth was a town of no more than about 400 people. That was the town that he grew up in. And not only that, it was totally looked down upon by outsiders. People looked at this town and they said, Nazareth. They're outsiders. It's a small, insignificant hick town, right? There's nothing redeemable about this town, Nazareth. We see that in John chapter 1. Jesus actually calls uh, this disciple named Philip. And Philip starts following Jesus, and he gets excited because he's met Jesus. And what do you do when you meet Jesus? You go tell your friends about him, right? And so Philip runs, and he goes, gets his friend Nathaniel, and he says, Nathaniel, we found Jesus. Here's how it goes. It's, it's John 1, 45 and 46. He says, Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And what does Nathanael say? Nazareth? <laughs> Can anything good come from there? That was the expectation, right? 
How could the Messiah come from Nazareth? Nazareth, it's small, it's insignificant, it's totally unexpected. Then there were the people Jesus hung out with. Totally unexpected. Here's how Scott Sells describes Jesus' crew. He says this, he says, A careful reading of scripture reveals that this is God's preferred way to make his presence known on earth. Not chiefly through movers, shakers, and A-listers, but rather through outcasts, losers, those of ill repute, and those who were held in low esteem. If we examine Jesus' friendships, for example, we will notice a disproportionately low number of celebrities, powerful politicians, affluent business people, high society people, prominent leaders, and the like. But if you were a known prostitute or a tax collector, an addict or an alcoholic, a no-name, a leper or paralytic, or a despised and rejected sinner, your chances of being invited into Jesus' inner circle of friends would increase. That's who Jesus hangs out with, right? Jesus uses the small and the insignificant to advance his kingdom. And that's really good news for us, right? That is really good news for us. Here's a question. Do you feel unimpressive? Do you feel like a loser? Great. <laughs> Jesus loves unimpressive losers, right? He loves to use unimpressive losers. Tim Keller says the church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. So you don't have to put on a show for Jesus. You don't have to put on a show for Jesus. Anyone Anyone can get in on his mustard seed kingdom. I love this verse, Luke 12, 32. I actually preached about it last month, but I can't stop thinking about it. It says this. This is Jesus talking. He says, fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Jesus calls you a little sheep, okay? A little sheep. That's what he calls us. Little sheep, small, seemingly insignificant, but greatly loved. Greatly loved, so loved that Jesus was willing to die to give you the kingdom. And that was the ultimate mustard seed moment, right? <laughs> no one thought the Messiah was going to come die at the hands of the Romans. They thought he was going to come wipe them out. But instead, they arrest him. Instead, they beat him. Instead, they mock him. They tear him to shreds. And he's murdered on a criminal's cross. And what do they do? They put him on that cross and they put a sign above him that says, here's your king. Here's your king. Small, insignificant, right? That's Jesus' life. It's mustard seed style. That's how he lived. That's how he died. But that's not the end of the story, right? That's not the end of the story. Here's point two. God's kingdom often comes slowly but always comes powerfully. It often comes slowly, but it always comes powerfully. Here's a question for you. How do you destroy a sidewalk? How do you destroy a sidewalk? Well, I think there's two ways. First of all, you can do it really fast with like dynamite or a jackhammer or something like that. But there's another way. You can plant a seed under it. And as that seed grows into a tree, the seed will win every single time. It's slow, it's slow, but it's powerful. And Jesus is telling us that's how God works. 
like a seed, not a jackhammer. Like a seed, not like dynamite. He always works powerfully, but he often works slowly. And as I've walked with Jesus, here's something that's become very clear to me. God and I have different, a different sense of time and urgency. I want results, but I don't want to wait. I hate waiting. I have never not burnt the roof of my mouth eating pizza because I hate waiting. <laughs> but God has a different sense of urgency. And being a part of God's kingdom often means waiting. Haven't you felt that? It often means waiting. We see this in one of my favorite Bible stories, John 11. You can turn there if you want. If not, it'll be on the screens behind me. John 11, um, famous story, the story of, of Lazarus. Here's how it starts. Verse 1, John 11. It says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. I'll stop there. So these sisters have a problem. But thankfully they have a friend named Jesus who can heal people. Right? That's good. So what do they do? They do what we do when we're in trouble. They call out to him. They call out to their friend Jesus. And then we go to verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He loved them. So what's he going to do? Heal Lazarus, right? Verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What? <laughs> Have you ever noticed that? That is, that is one of the weirdest verses in the entire Bible, right? He loved them, so he waited. He loved them, so he waited. Mary and Martha, full of hope, call out to their friend Jesus. And what does he do? Delays. Waits. Can you picture what they were feeling? Like, we, a lot of us, we know the end, right? We, know, we have the spoiler alert here. We know where this is going. But they don't know. Can you imagine what they're feeling? They call out to their friend and get no answer. They call out to their friend and he delays. I can't imagine the pain they're feeling, the bitterness that starts to creep in. And that's why this is so important. The story is so important because it shows us why God works the way he does. We've already said he works like a mustard seed, not a jackhammer. But in this story, we see why. We see why. First of all, we see clearly that God moves slowly for his glory. He moves slowly for his glory. Why did Jesus delay? Well, he says it in verse 4. He says, this is for God's glory. That's why I'm delaying. It's for God's glory. God loves to do things that only he can do. So the logical response when he works is praise and worship of him. He moves slowly for his glory. And this means that he's going to work on his time, not ours. He's going to work on his time, not ours. He could have made a sick man better, which is pretty cool. But he's going to make a dead man alive. Amen. That's what Jesus is doing. He's working for his glory. But that's not all. That's not all. Don't miss this. God moves slowly. We just talked about this. God moves slowly because he loves us. 
That makes a lot less sense to me. Doesn't it, you? Slow and love don't go together, right, in my mind. God moves slowly because he loves us. He delays because he loves you. So just rest in that, okay? If you are waiting right now, okay, rest in that. Waiting doesn't mean he doesn't love you. It's hard to see that a lot of the time, but waiting doesn't mean he doesn't love you. When he makes you wait, he's not messing with you. I promise you, he's not messing with you, even if it feels that way. He loves you. And in this passage, we see how much he loves us. When he shows up in Bethany, Lazarus has already been dead for four days. The text tells us that he's decomposing. Martha tells Jesus, don't open the tomb, he's going to stink. Or one of my favorite verses in the Bible is this in the King James. It says, his body stinketh. Look it up, it's awesome. (laughs) But here's what I want you to see. He shows up late, but look at how he shows up. Look at how he shows up. First of all, we're told that when he shows up, he weeps with Mary. Mm. She is weeping over her brother, and Jesus weeps with her. Isn't that amazing? We have a God, think about this, we have a God who isn't distant. We have a God who weeps with us. When you're weeping, our God's been there. He's lost friends, he's seen illness, he's been there. He gets it. He weeps with those who are weeping. That's just awesome. But it's not just that. He feels empathy for us. He weeps with us when we're weeping, but he truly cares what we're going through. He doesn't move slowly because he doesn't care. Because as Jesus stands outside Lazarus's tomb, and this is just so cool, he's standing outside Lazarus's tomb. Picture this. He's surrounded by weeping and wailing. That would be the culture here, right? They let their emotion out. And so everyone's weeping. Everyone's wailing. Jesus is weeping. Mary's weeping. They're all weeping. And the text tells us two times something else Jesus was feeling. It says he's deeply moved. Deeply moved. Now this word in the Greek that we translate into English, we kind of soften it a little bit. Because here's what that word was used for. The word that we translate in our Bibles, deeply moved in the ESV, here's what it was used for in the Greek. It was used for a war horse about to go into war. It was used to describe a horse staring at his enemy, snorting. That's it. Have you ever been so mad that you snorted? That's what this is talking about, okay? Jesus is war horse angry, war horse focused, staring at his enemy, staring at death. That's what he's doing. He's at, the, he's at this tomb that his friend is buried in, and he's war-horsed focused. I'm going to put an end to this. That's what he's feeling. I'm going to put an end to this. That's it. That, that's what's going on. It's not just that he's like, oh, no. It's, no. This is my enemy. Let's get ready to roll because I'm going to take it on. That's what he's doing here. That's what he's doing here. And here's how the story ends. Here's how the story ends. Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. Deeply moved. You see it now? See what he's doing? Deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. 
Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Come out. It's amazing, right? He moves slowly, but he moves powerfully. He raises this man from the dead. And this is pointing us to an even bigger event, right? Remember what Jesus said? Roll away the stone. Roll away the stone. It's not the last time he said that. <laughs> Roll away the stone. He's going to say that again, but from inside the tomb. Roll away the stone. He moves slowly, but he moves powerfully. And that takes us to point three. God's kingdom is still advancing, and we get to be part of the story. God's kingdom is still advancing, and we get to be part of the story. Let's stick with Lazarus here for a second. Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And then this, here's verse 44. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Picture that, picture that, okay? Jesus has Lazarus come out of the tomb. Everyone is standing around dumbfounded. Lazarus comes out still wrapped up. It says his face is covered. So he's like, you know, like just trying, like, guys, you're going to help? Like, what are you doing? And Jesus is like, unbind him, unbind him. And like, that seems like a little insignificant sentence. But I couldn't help but think about this. This is so cool. Who's the hero of this story? Yeah, like it's Jesus, right? Like that's the most obvious thing ever. Who's the hero of this story? The one who raised the guy from the dead. That's the hero of the story. If someone raises someone from the dead, they're the hero of the story, always, okay? He raises him from the dead. He's the hero of the story. But here's something cool. He could have unwrapped Lazarus himself, but he invites other people into the story. He's the hero, but he invites other people into the story. And the Bible tells us that is how the kingdom works. The kingdom is advancing. Jesus is the one bringing dead people to life. And we get to be part of that story. We get to be part of that story. There are two parables in our passage this morning. I've, I've hung out on the mustard seed. But there's also the leaven. And in this parable, a woman puts a little leaven into a whole bunch of flour. And what does it do? It permeates. It spreads. It takes the flower over. Just like the kingdom does. Just like the kingdom does. And now, we have the honor of being 2,000 years ahead looking back at how this has actually happened. And we can see it happen throughout church history. Think about this. The Bible tells us that we are living in the already but not yet. The already, but not yet. The king has already come. He has lived. He has died. He has rose again and defeated death. But the kingdom has not come in full. One day Jesus will come back like a war horse, right? Like a war horse to make everything fully right. But what's happening right now? 
What's happening right now? God's kingdom is spreading across the whole world. The leaven is permeating. And we see it in our Bibles. We see how it started. In Acts 1, it starts with a small group of Jesus' followers. Then 3,000 are added. Then thousands more are added. And it keeps going. And if you remember, if you go read Acts, it gets to Acts 28, and it just kind of stops. But here we are. We keep continuing the story, right? And people, dead people, spiritually dead people, are coming to life. The kingdom is spreading, even here in Knoxville, Tennessee, in 2021 and around the world. We are a part of the story. We are a part of the story. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you have a role to play. Don't ever think that your life doesn't have meaning or purpose. You have a role to play. You have a role to play. And so what does it look like for you? What does this look like? Here's the thing. Let's go back to my initial story up front. It could look like Charles Spurgeon, okay? Maybe you're the next Charles Spurgeon. Maybe. Maybe thousands of people come to know Jesus because of you. Maybe. But probably not. Probably not. God's, God's used a few of those, right? He's used a few of those. But how does he usually work? Through the seemingly small. Through the seemingly insignificant. He usually works through the Methodist preacher who wasn't prepared. Not the Charles Spurgeon, right? That's usually how he works. With the, the, through the people that no one would ever suspect. In ways that no one would ever suspect. And so when you're looking for things to do, to, if you're looking for things to do for God, don't just look to the big things. Look at the small and insignificant. God uses that, right? Here, there are thousands, there are thousands of things you could think of. You could probably write them down now. Think of thousands of things you can do. Let me give you four. Okay? Let me give you four. Here's just four examples. Maybe it's none of these. Maybe it's all of these for you. I don't know. Here's four things I came up with. Number one, there was an announcement before the service about serving in kids' ministry. That is mustard seed ministry. It is. It's mustard seed ministry. You don't get to see the fruit usually right there and then, right? It's people. Okay, I baptized my brother this morning, right? He grew up here in the kids' ministry, and here he is at 23 getting baptized, okay? Think of all the people who pointed him to Jesus during his time here, right? It seemed small. It seemed insignificant, but God uses it, right? That is a great, seemingly insignificant way to serve God. Look, maybe it's you have kids of your own, right? And you, through good days and bad days, behind the closed doors of your house, you have to point them to Jesus. Good days and bad days. Maybe it looks like faithfully discipling just one person or two people or three people, and meeting with them at a coffee shop once a week. Just teach them how to follow Jesus. <laughs> Mustard seed ministry, right? But God's going to use it. Maybe it looks like practicing hospitality. Seeing your house as a gift from God to further his kingdom and opening it up to people and pointing them to Jesus. None of those things seem big. None of those things, we don't even celebrate those things as much as we should right? They don't seem big, but God can use them. <laughs> he loves to use the small and seemingly insignificant. Imagine if everyone in this room took that to heart, and we all did the small. Imagine what God could do through this church. I'll close with this. Um, there's one other big application here. Another seemingly small and insignificant way that Jesus commands us to be a part of his kingdom. And this one, I, gave, I just gave you suggestions. This isn't a suggestion. Jesus commands this one, okay? 
His disciples ask him, Lord, how do we pray? How do we pray? And Jesus says, pray like this. The Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed, glorified, be your name. Your kingdom come, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so Jesus says, when you pray, pray for the kingdom to come. We pray that prayer. Pray for the kingdom to come. Pray for the earth to be renewed. Pray for dead people to be made alive. Pray for the sick to be healed. Pray for broken relationships to be restored. Pray for injustice to be dismantled. Pray for the kingdom to come. We pray for those things, okay? We pray for his kingdom to come because he's the one who brings the kingdom. So we're going to do something a little bit different, okay? I was going to send you out and be like, hey, go pray for that. And then I was thinking, why don't we just do it right here, okay? Like, why do we have to leave to go do that? So here's what I want you to do, okay? I want you to, if, if, you, if you want to, you can stay by yourself and pray. That's totally fine. But if you're comfortable with it, grab one or two or three or four people near you and just kind of get together And I want you to pray, okay? I want you to pray for this. And I want you to pray out loud, okay? I know. I want you to pray out loud so everyone can hear you. And I want to pray for the kingdom to come. And I want you to pray two major points here, okay? Number one, number one, pray for the already. Pray for the already. Pray for the things that God has already done. Thank him for that. Thank him for how he has saved you. Thank him for how he saved your friends and your family. Thank, you for what, thank him for what you've already done, or he's already done. And now I want you to pray for his kingdom to come. Because we are well aware that we live in a broken world. And so we need to pray that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So let's just do that. I'm going to give you about four or five minutes just to pray together right now. And then I'll come up, I'll close us in prayer, and then we'll be dismissed.
Our Father, we thank you just for loving us, for being pleased to give us the kingdom, so much so that Jesus would die for us. Thank you. Thank you for weeping us with us when we weep, for caring about what we're going through. Father, we know that you rule from heaven. Help us trust you when it seems like you're moving too slowly for us. Help our priorities to match yours. Let us be a church that brings glory to your name, whether we are gathered, gathered together or scattered around the city at our jobs and with family. We pray that your kingdom will come, that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we ask that you just use this church. We know that you don't need us, but use us. We want to be a part of your story. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.